To bring you up to speed, we've been in a series called Back to Our Roots for a while now, and this morning is our last message in that series. We have been following the Apostle Paul all throughout the book of Acts, which is this amazing story of Paul traveling from city to city to proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And he was telling people everywhere, all around the Mediterranean, that they can actually know God because of Jesus. Now, that sounded like crazy talk to most of the people he talked to, and that might sound like crazy talk to you this morning. But the result was that lives were being changed. Families and neighborhoods and and cities and eventually the entire Roman Empire was transformed. And today, the good news of Jesus Christ is worldwide. In our series, Back to Our Roots, we've been looking about how we've been looking at how it all started, looking at the early church and, and learning from them so that we as a church don't lose our way. So that as a church, we can be a part of the same story, realize we're part of the same mission. And if we're going to be a part of the same story, it will require the same courageous perseverance that the Apostle Paul and the early church had. You know, leading up, if, if you read it, uh, leading up to the end of Acts, you see that, that everything goes wrong for the Apostle Paul. He was falsely accused. He was almost assassinated. Uh, then he was imprisoned. And then he appeals to Rome for a fair trial. And on the way to Rome, he gets shipwrecked. He manages to get to shore. And then he gets bitten by a poisonous snake. Everything goes wrong for the Apostle Paul. And when Paul finally gets to Rome, he's put on house arrest in a house that he rented while he was waiting for trial. And before the author, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, before he tells us what happened to Paul, he kind of abruptly ends the book of Acts with these words. Paul proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The end. And that's it. It's just, what happened to the Apostle Paul? I'll tell you later. But for now, notice that Luke, the author, look what he mentions in the previous verse. He says, for two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Now, now, people back then would have understood that Paul must have never went to trial here. The accusers had two years to present their case, but apparently they didn't make the long trip uh, to, or bother with the, with the case, probably because they realized they, they had no case. So what happens to Paul? Tradition tells us, we don't learn this from the scriptures, but for... But from tradition, we, we learn that years later, he was imprisoned again, and he was tried again, and finally he was executed. So what were his final years like? Well, the last words we have from Paul are found in 2 Timothy. And, and just like what we've seen all throughout the book of Acts, we learn that Paul courageously persevered until the very end. 
How did he courageously persevere to the very end with all of those things that were going wrong for him? And and if we are going to be a part of the same story, if we are going to persevere in our lives, in our personal calling, if we're going to persevere as a church and not lose our way and stay on message and to be about God's business, not our own, and just play religion or play church, I mean, how do we courageously persevere? Well, we have a lot to learn from Paul and his words here. The Apostle Paul was convinced, we see in this passage from Timothy, he was convinced of five critical facts of life, and we need to be convinced of those facts of life as well. For the Christian, first, you need to realize that all of life is a struggle. Amen? Amen. You know what I'm talking about. Some of the last words we have from Paul are very well known He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Life is a struggle. And Paul says, I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. And and the original word used for fight there is a word for a wrestling match. It's a word from which we get our word agony. It's a word that means struggle. And, and, And a race is a struggle too, right? In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says that being a Christian is like an athlete. And he brings up these examples of a boxer and a runner and and. If you found yourself, for whatever reason, in a boxing ring, and you make no effort, what is your opponent going to do to you? Yes, and you will lose, right? Runners. Ming Ming is a runner, a bona fide runner. You all know Ming. That means he trains by running 5,000 miles every day. And you know what, he's described to me that the pain involved with that. And it's the weirdest thing. No one is forcing him to do that. I mean, he, he chooses the agony. No one's holding a gun to his head saying, you better run. That's probably what I need. But no one does that for, for me. Now, Paul is not saying... Life sucks and then you die. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about, specifically, he's talking about the Christian life. He's talking about the Christian life being a deliberate struggle. A struggle against what most people don't struggle against. And as a result, most people are getting beat down and they don't even know it. Athletes say yes to self-control even when it hurts and no to pizza and ice cream and bagel bites. They fight their natural impulses. And when Paul talks about self-control, he's talking about fighting our impulses to be self-centered, our impulses to be selfish. 
Being selfish is our default nature. And maybe you say, oh, I don't really think that replies to me. I, I think I'm actually a pretty generous person. Let me tell you something, though. So often our generosity is mixed with selfish motives. Either to win somebody over or maybe feel better about ourselves or whatever. Selfishness is our default nature. And it's something that we have to fight against. And if you're not fighting, you are losing. We will consciously or unconsciously have an attitude towards other that says, your life and your resources to serve me. Instead of my life and my resources to serve you. And the more we give into your life for me impulses, the less we're able to say, my life for you. The less able we are to love others and we become more self-absorbed and more self-absorbed and more self-absorbed. C.S. Lewis says, hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself in which you could stop it. But there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize. To criticize the mood or even enjoy the mood. But just the grumble itself, going on forever like a machine. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. If we're not fighting to kill self-absorption, self-absorption will kill us. We'll be unloving, more and more unloving. We'll be cynical and more and more cynical. And we will justify it all. You don't understand. I need this. How dare you call me out on that? What do you mean I'm being selfish? And we justify it all so easily. All of life is a struggle for every Christian, every church, every day. Second, to courageously persevere, we got to know that death is not the end. It's the beginning Paul says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I'm being poured out. I am almost spent. The time of my departure is near. And the word for departure was a way of talking about death. It's a a word that means to untie, especially when untying a boat to go on a voyage. And leaving on a long voyage is sad because it's a departure from people that you love and, and, and the things that you know, but it's also exciting, right? Now, this is a radically different view of death. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians to people who have lost loved ones that were, that were close to them, and he says, I want you to grieve, but I don't want you to grieve as those who have no hope. Normally, it's we grieve and have no hope or we have kind of manufactured a a hope and and a denial about the realities of death. But he says, I want you to grieve, but I don't want you to grieve as those who have no hope. And that requires a radically different view of death. Where did he get it? 
He gets it from Jesus. Jesus had a close friend, a very close friend named Lazarus. And Lazarus dies. And Jesus shows up at Lazarus' tomb with Mary and Martha, and he weeps with them. Now, if you know anything about Jesus, and if you know anything about the story, you know that he's going to raise him from the dead, right? You know that Jesus himself was involved in all of creation. So when he's weeping with Mary and Martha, is he just faking it just to make them feel better? He knows he's about to raise Lazarus. But still, in a few verses later, the original language uses a words that describe Jesus' weeping as bellowing with anger. <laughs> he was mad at death because death is not natural. Death is not the way that things are supposed to be. We weren't created for that. I heard Tim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller, an author, he's an author and a pastor, he was talking about this, and, and talking about this passage um, in Paul's view of death, he says, uh, Jesus is not the Lion King. In the movie, he says, the Lion King said, well, Simba, you, you know it's bad that we die, but then we get to be fertilizer. And the grass grows up out of the fertilizer, and then the antelopes eat the grass, and then we eat the antelopes, and so we're all part of the circle of life. We die, but it's all good and natural. And Keller says, you are not going to get that from Jesus. You are not going to get that from the Bible. And we all know it's not true anyway. It's popular to say that death is part of life. There's a reason that doesn't sound right. Death is part of life? When someone close to us dies, we don't think that they're fertilizer. Death is not part of life. Death is death and life is life. And death is not natural. God didn't create a world with evil suffering, or death. That all entered the world because we turned away from God and everything's broken now. What is natural is for us to be angry at death. But at the same time, we don't grieve as those who have no hope because Jesus raises Lazarus as a token of what he's going to do at the end of time. And our hope is this, that all that death can do now, if you are united in Christ, is it's to make you better. It's to make you whole. It's to make you complete. Who you were created to be. Paul, Paul's other famous statement about death is in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, death is swallowed up in victory. And then he says, hey, death, where's your sting? I mean, this is a taunt that Paul's throwing down right here. Paul's saying, all right, let's go, death. Bring it to me. Give Give me your best shot. I mean, you can try to destroy me, but you'll only make me into something greater. I mean, resurrection with new bodies and new hearts, free from sin. I, I know it sounds crazy, but our hearts know that it's true. That's why we have a longing for it. Everybody has that longing. Where do you think that came from? Because you were created for life. 
A life free from death. A life that doesn't know death. Death is not the end. It's the beginning of life the way it's supposed to be. Uh, C.S. Lewis is most known for his Chronicles of, of Narnia. Who here has heard of Chronicles of Narnia? A lot of you have. Most of you have. It's a whole series of books. Uh, I guess the most famous one is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but it's a whole series of books. And the series um, ends after all of the main characters die. Spoiler alert. I kind of did that backwards. I should have told you before. It ends with these words. It says, All their life in this world, all their adventures, had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and which every chapter is better than the one before. Life is a struggle. Death is not the end. It's just the beginning. It's life of life the way it's meant to be. And then third, God is in control of all history. And Paul, he's, he's arrested and tried, prosecuted. He had to answer accusations. Verse 16, he says, At my first defense, I was rescued from the lion's mouth. At his first defense, he was, he was found not guilty. And then it says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. Now, you read that, and it sounds like Paul is saying, the Lord is going to make sure that nothing bad ever happens to me because Jesus is my bodyguard. But that is not what he's saying. Remember, Paul just said, I'm already being poured out. My departure is near. He knows that he's going to be executed. That's why... All of verse 18 says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Oh, okay. So what Paul is saying, I don't know. This right here is either going to really encourage you or devastate you, one or the other, maybe a little bit of both. What Paul is saying is that sometimes God will rescue me from suffering and sometimes God will rescue me through suffering. And what does he mean by rescue? Paul knows that selfishness and self-absorption turns us into hellish creatures. The only disease that could really kill us is sin. God rescues us by pursuing us even when we didn't want to have anything to do with him. He chose to love us even when we did not love him. He wants good for us even when so often we blame him for the things that go wrong in our lives. And he wants to turn us into something great. Paul tells us in another letter that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it on the day of Jesus Christ. Sometimes God rescues you from suffering, but sometimes he rescues you through suffering. Paul 
goes as far as to say, sometimes God rescues me from death, but it's also possible that he might rescue me through death. But it doesn't matter because in the end, I will be safe in his heavenly kingdom. You know, it's so easy as you look at your life and look at the lives of others around you and watch the news or read the news to think that history is just a random crapshoot filled with pointless pain. Paul says that God redeems the pain for our rescue. That is why the Apostle Paul can have so much poise when he says, like in verse 16 at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. And, and, and Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. Uh, the, Lord, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. He is not filled with worry, and he's not filled with vengeance. Why? You know, it was after Paul was shipwrecked that he writes Romans 8.28. That we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now Paul says together because without that word, he might be saying that every bad thing that happens is really going to come out to be good. But Paul's not that shallow. You know, it's only from the vantage point of eternity that we will be able to look back on history and understand that everything together was so overruled by God that even evil things in the long run all together ended up bringing about a greater good and a greater glory than that would have happened otherwise. It looks like a mess right now, but we can't see things from God's perspective. I remember when I was a little kid, um, watching TV in the living room, lying on the floor, head propped up on my hand, my mom sitting on the couch doing needlepoint. She's working on something. I look up, I can only see the backside of what she's working on, and it's all these strings and stuff, and I'm like, man, mom needs to get some needlepoint lesson. That's, that looks like a mess. Good luck with that, mom. But then I, when I would stand up, and I could see what she was working on from her perspective. It was this beautiful picture. And that's the way our life in this world is right now. It can look like such a mess. We can't see the beautiful picture that God is crafting. And we're not going to be able to see it until we have perspective from eternity. You know, uh, it was a few weeks ago that both my, my wife and I were just clobbered with some some deep discouragement, you know? The, the kind that, that just, it, it just sucks the life out of you, right? And so Shan had this idea to read portions of, of the book of Job. And she read these portions to me. And the book of Job starts with God giving Satan permission to attack Job and bring incredible suffering into his life. And you read that and you think, why in the world would God do that? 
But at the end, you have a different perspective. And you ask yourself, do you think Satan intended to help produce one of the greatest books in the history of the world, the book of Job, that has helped hundreds of millions of people be faithful to God in the midst of suffering? Do you think he had any idea? There's no way he had any idea. But that's what he did without even knowing, knowing it. The evil one, what the evil one meant for evil, God meant for good. And that's what Paul is saying here. God is going to rescue me from bad things or through bad things. But either way, he's going to rescue me because God is in control. It's not all pointless. And then fourth, if we're going to persevere, you need to know that the gospel can't be stopped. This should be good news to you. The book of Acts, like I said, ends abruptly. Luke doesn't tell us what happened to Paul. Did he get a fair child? Was he able to speak before Caesar? Was he able to present the gospel to Caesar, who was the ruler of the known world at that time? What happened? Luke doesn't tell us. The last line in his book of Acts is, he proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Luke does not tell us about what happened to Paul because the book is not about Paul. It's about the gospel. It's about King Jesus and his kingdom. And it's about the progress of the gospel and his kingdom. And, you know, Paul, when we went through the book of Acts, we learned that he and his team endured great suffering. There were countless obstacles. Often they were weak. Often they were scared. People ran them out of town. Some were murdered. The evil one attacked them. There was so much opposition. And the point of the book is you can imprison people and you can kill people, but you can never imprison or kill the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ and his kingdom cannot be stopped. Remember that old classic movie, Jurassic Park? Didn't come out like 28 years ago or something like that? I know, it made me feel old. Dr. John Hammond started a theme park of real cloned dinosaurs. And then he brings over all of these world-renowned scientists like Ian Malcolm, played by Jeff Goldblum. And at one point, Dr. Hammond tells, tells the scientists, you know, we only cloned females so they can't breed. We have complete control of the population. And Jeff Goldblum is completely unimpressed, looks at Dr. Hammond and says, John, the kind of control you are attempting simply is not possible. Life will not be contained. Life breaks free. It expands to new territories and crashes through barriers. And one of the Jurassic Park scientists says, so you're saying that these female dinosaurs will, will breed and, and reproduce? And Goldblum says, no, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that life finds a way. The message of the book of Acts is that the gospel is alive and it cannot be stopped. 
The gospel breaks through barriers. The gospel will always, always find a way. You can kill its preachers. You can put Christians in prison. It doesn't matter. The gospel will find a way. It is the most powerful force on the face of the earth. It is broken through all, bar- all, all barriers. In fact, you know what? Every other religion has 80 to 90% of its followers in one or two co- continents. Christianity is broken through all the cultural barriers to go global. You know why? Because the gospel can't be stopped. That is the message of the book of Acts. And if you want to persevere with courage in, in your life and in your calling and, and, and on mission with this church, we got to know that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for the world. And then last, we got to know that our greatest need is to have a friend in Jesus. This is our greatest need. And this is the key to everything else that I've been saying. Paul knew that there was only one thing he really needed. He said at my, my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. In the Old Testament, Proverbs 18.28 says, There is a friend who sticks closer than the brother. The Old Testament talks a lot about friendship and it constantly mentions two qualities of of a friend. They open their life to you and they are there for you. They have open arms and they have open hearts. They're willing to trust you. That means they're willing to be vulnerable and they're there for you. Paul says, the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. And the the word originally used for strength means to bind up wounds. God's caring for him. We see both the tenderness and the strong resolve of true friendship. He felt the reality of God being with him and for him as a true friend. Let me ask you this morning. If you dozed off or if your mind wandered, bring it back. I want to ask you a question. Do you have an experience of the Lord's friendship? Do you experience the Lord's friendship? Do you know the Lord? And if not, how do you get that? The only way is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. In in John 15, the night before Jesus was about to die, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, I don't just call you my servants, I call you my friends now because I'm about to lay my life down for you. Jesus is the ultimate friend. His heart is open to you. His arms were nailed open to you on the cross. And my question for you this morning is, is if he was willing to be nailed to the cross, to live for you, to die for you, if he was willing to be abandoned by everyone, including God the Father, what else does he have to do to prove that he's there for you? In John Stott's commentary, 2 Timothy, he writes that when Paul says, everyone deserted me at my defense, it was Paul's calvary. And yet there's a major difference, he says. Because at that point, God was with Paul. The Lord was by his side. 
But when everybody deserted Jesus, everybody deserted him, and he turned to God and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, we were meant to walk with God, but we turned away. We became selfish and and self-absorbed. We deserve for God to turn away from us. But that's what happened to Jesus on the cross. He dies in our place. He got what we deserved so that now our sins are atoned for when we believe in God through Jesus Christ and we can know that the Lord is with us, that he's for us, that he's our friend, that he will never leave us, that he will never forsake us. Do you have that friendship with the Lord? Without it, you will never persevere with courage. Not in your life, not in your personal calling, not in this church. So my encouragement to you is this. Turn to Christ as your Savior. Turn to Christ as your King. Turn to Christ as your friend. The only one who can save you God is calling to himself, and don't put it off. You know, there's a small line in here where Paul tells Timothy to come to him before winter, before shipwreck season. In other words, before it's too late. God is calling you to come to him before it's too late. Don't put it off. Do it before your heart hardens completely, before your conviction wears off, before you get completely self-absorbed. There is a true friend who sticks closer than a brother. And you can know him. He is with you and he is for you. Amen? Amen. Amen. Would you bow your heads with me?